If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This it was given me to know, that many worlds have been enslaved by the beast and his army, the Slayers. And this too was given me to know, that the beast would come to our world, the world of Krull, and his black fortress would be seen in the land. That the smoke of burning villages would darken the sky, and the cries of the dying echo through deserted valleys. But one thing I cannot know, whether the prophecy be true, that a girl of ancient name shall become queen, that she shall choose a king, and that together they shall rule our world, and that their son shall rule the galaxy. Hello, I am Randy Andrews, and today I'm talking about Krull from 1983. This movie is a favorite of mine, and I've waited a long time to discuss this movie on the podcast. I'll talk the cast, the background, the effects, and the fantastic soundtrack by James Horner today, all on Soundtrack Alley. So thinking back on Crawl from 1983, it's a highlight for myself. I've really enjoyed this movie. It may have its flaws, but it's one of the best enjoyable and fun movies that I can think of from that time period. So let's get into some of the talking about the cast for Crawl. They will hold her in the Black Fortress. You must have help. This picture was one of the most expensively produced motion pictures of its time. Now, it's only to date uh, was top bi- first billed starring the role for Ken Marshall. Um, to prepare for his role as Prince Colwyn, he worked out constantly prior to principal photography, training in such sports as riding, fencing, and boxing. Bernard Breslau, who plays the giant Rel the Cyclops in the movie, has played another giant in another sword and sorcery movie, uh, portraying the giant Gort in Hawk the Slayer, which is another low-budget sci-fi fantasy movie. Uh, Freddie Jones and Francesca Ennis also appeared in this movie. Again, they also appeared in Dune, in 1984. Bernard Breslau 
as Rel, the solitary giant cyclops, he stands six foot seven, and he wore tall lifts to make him several inches taller for his scenes in the movie. Ken Marshall was cast in the lead center role in the film, having recently portrayed the title role in the then-recent television series Marco Polo back in 1982. This was also the final cinema movie for actor John Welsh. Now, Princess Lissa, or Lissette Anthony, had her voice dubbed in the final cut by Lindsay Krauss. Robbie Coltrane's character voice was actually fellow Brit Michael Elphick. Now also, Trevor Martin, he voiced the Beast. He would later star in an episode of Beast, which I don't know what that is, but it sounds interesting. Actress uh, Lysette uh, Anthony, he, she portrayed a character, Princess Lissa, who had the first name similar to her own, which isn't a big surprise. Uh, the movie had notable featurings of early appearances of Liam Neeson and Robbie Coltrane. So now let's talk on some of the background and technical aspects on the film. Bandits, fighters, and brawlers. Desperate men. Those are the kind of men I need. Well, you heard him. We are now an army. <laughs> the Cyclops had said that fire mirrors can travel a thousand leagues in a day. A league was defined as a distance of heavily armed man could travel in an hour, usually three to four mile, miles, or four to seven kilometers. That means that fire mares can travel about 3,500 miles, 5,000 kilometers a day, at an average speed of 145 miles per hour. Now that's really fast. That's like a really fast sports car going nonstop for several miles. The production utilized 10 sound stages at Pinewood Studios, including the biggest of them, the gigantic 007 stage, which was used for the exteriors of the swamp sequence. A short behind-the-scenes promotional documentary about the film uh, was made for television, and this was entitled Journey to Crawl, and it's now available on the DVD, DVD with the movie. There were 23 movie sets that were constructed for filming. Now, that's a lot of sets for just one movie, but it had multiple location areas, and it had several expansive and very elaborate sets that were made. Now, for the fire mares, there were 16 Clydesdale horses that were trained for months to be able to play those parts. Uh, the dub of the death screams of the Slayers was taken from the Maiar streaks in At the Earth's Core. Now, one thing that I really think about with these death screams of the Slayers is you see this, this bulbous like alien creature come out of the Slayer's heads when they die. And it was really effective in the film. And at one point, as they're fighting in the swamp, you see one of the main uh, thug characters, he looks over at one of the Slayers and his eyes light up and he's like, oh, that was different. 
And it just was a really effective scene because it showed the reality of what was happening when they would die. Uh, the Widow of the Web's aging makeup had 23 elements to apply on the actress's face, head, and body. Now, for nearly four weeks, the cast and crew moved to the Pinewood Studios' biggest stage used for the James Bond adventures, which measured 336 by 139 by 40. And this transformed into an eerie and clammy swampland, dotted with jagged trees and foaming eight-foot-deep pools. And this ominous landscape of browns and yellows took over five months of construction. The special effects department created a superbly realistic quicksand mire in which some unlucky technicians, which were like 20 of them, at one time or another found themselves in. Director Peter Yates had to balance himself on a raft, which floated on one of the many pools to survey the massive set. Particularly difficult shots demanded the camera operator don a wetsuit and immerse himself in either quicksand or one of the larger pools to get the right shot. According to special makeup designer Nick Mallet, the special effects character of the Beast was the first self-contained animatronic suit, providing not only facial movement but also lung, heart, and body fluid movement all without a single external cable. While the Emerald Seer transformation puppet, which was intercut with non-3D transformation makeup, attracted the welcome attention of the great uh, effects artist Dick Smith. Now, Frank Price, the then president of Columbia Pictures, determined that an unknown American actress would help state stateside ticket sales as opposed to an unknown English actress. With that logic in mind, Price met with Lysette Anthony and informed her that all of her dialogue had been dubbed by actress Lindsay Krauss. Anthony was totally unaware that her voice was to be dubbed prior to the meeting. And I would think that it would be a little upsetting for her. A hand that could physically transform into the Changeling Claw was developed for the movie, but due to time constraints could not be developed in time and was not used in the film. But the piece was later completed for Tobe Hooper's movie Life Force, which is another sci-fi and vampire mix movie. There were several games that were developed and released as promotional tie-ins with the picture. These included two Parker Brothers games, a card game and a board game, a home video game developed by the Atari. Uh, First, it was the 5200 Super System, and then it became the Atari 2600. Now, because of low sales, it was changed, of course, and the 1984 arcade game Crawl was manufactured by Columbia Pictures Industries, and they were also the producers of the film, and so they developed the never-released Crawl Pinball Parlor game, 
which would have been actually pretty cool to see. So, for five months, a cast and crew of several hundred created the planet Crawl, inhabiting ten sound stages and exploring 23 different sets. There were 40 of the Slayers that were made for the movie, with 20 manufactured initially in only 10 days. Now, the cast was predominantly comprised of British actors and actresses, including several Royal Shakespeare Company regulars from London's National Theatre. And many of the movie posters for the film featured a long preamble that read, Beyond Beyond our time, time. beyond Beyond our universe, universe. there is a planet besieged by alien invaders, where a young king must rescue his love from the clutches of the beast or risk the death of his world, Crow, a world light years beyond your imagination. The picture won a Stinker's Bad Movie Award for Worst Picture in the 6th Hastings Bad Cinema Society Stinker's Award in 1983. Now, I don't know why it received that award, because this was a really fantastic sci-fi adventure movie, and I couldn't see why it turned out to where they thought it was so bad. Now, within weeks of the start of the principal photography, the wardrobe department evolved into a showcase of over a hundred different costumes, ranging from iridescent wedding gowns to tattered suede and leather riding apparel, daggers, swords, crossbows, crates of emerald-colored stones, crystal hourglasses, and countless other items, many of which defied classification, filled every shelf and corner of the prop rooms. There were special makeup effects artists, uh, Christopher Tucker. He was originally going to design the characters and makeup effects for the movie, but left the production over creative differences. Also, there was a gymnasium equipped with an Olympic-sized trampoline and was set up in a vacant storeroom to facilitate the 40 stuntmen who had been cast. Now, the movie was also rumored to be around 1980, and it was going originally to be a tie-in with the role-playing game of Dungeons & Dragons. D&D, to be known as Dragons of Crawl, of which a screenplay was being written around this time. According to E. Gary Gygax, to the best of his knowledge and belief, the producers of Crawl never approached the company for a license to enable their film to use the D&D game IP and did not draw inspiration from that game. Now, in all reality, the director Peter Yates, this was his only science fiction genre film, which is oddly unique for his uh, vast amount of directing debuts. Scent coordinator Vic Armstrong scoured all over the United Kingdom for 16 Clydesdale horses to purchase and then train. Moreover, the horses from the Queen's Household Cavalry near Buckingham Palace were borrowed and brought to the studio's back lot. So some of them were royal. The name of the home of the Widow of the Web was the Lair of the Crystal Spider, while the name the mountainous spaceship belonged to to the beast villain was the Black Fortress. Also, there is a real-life glaive weapon, 
but it's different from the fictional one seen in the movie. The European pole-arm weapon has only one side single-edged blade instead of five for the film on the tip of a pole, and it had been likened to the Chinese Gondo or Japanese Nagananta. One of the two movies that were directed by Peter Yates and first released in 1983, and the other was The Dresser, and both were Columbia Pictures. Now, many think that the name Krull refers to the glaive, but no, it's actually the planet which gets invaded. Now, there was a cavernous grotto, glistening gems encrusted in its walls, and was welcomed after a set of bitterly cold nights of filming in Black Park, the sprawling forest-like reserve near Pinewood Studios. There, production designer Stephen B. Grimes had created from wood, plaster, stones, and glass a fanciful home for a clairvoyant who pursues his visions by setting into motion a large glowing emerald. While the art department was busy spreading fine ground silver glass on the floors and spreading emerald-colored stones, the special effects department was rigging a large green stone which would rotate in midair. Wind machines were also installed to create the powerful gusts that disrupt a hologram of the Beast Fortress after the clairvoyant had it called forth for Colwyn and Yanir to see. When the film was released on the big screen and on VHS in New Zealand, it was given a G rating, despite its violence and frightening scenes. And after it was released to DVD, it was changed to be PG. Now, there were images of the glaive weapon object that were associated with the film's promotion and frequently was linked with the picture's crawl title logo. For the final month of principal photography, the production unit moved to locations in Italy to film exterior sequences. Now, this was via the traveling mat process, and they also secured plates to facilitate sequences shot against a blue screen in Pinewood Studios. In Italy, while the main unit followed the movement of Prince Colwyn and his army across the planet Krull, the special effects model unit was filming the burning of Krullian villages and establishing shots of Prince Colwyn and his father, King Turold, arriving at the White Castle. Show business trade paper Variety described the movie as Excalibur meets Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, and there were very many similarities between the two. The name of the magical ancient spinning jewel five-pointed razor-tip boomerang-like throwing weapon was known as the glaive, and it's that's a really complicated uh, description of the weapon. The film also contains several obvious similarities to the Lord of the Rings, such as the Dark Lord's evil eye, the magical sword weapon like Sting, the sinister gars reminiscent of the Black Riders, and the giant spider and web like Shelob, etc. Now, part of an early to mid-1980s cycle was having these sword and sorcery movies, There were several in the series of these types of movies that existed, and some of them were very low-budget and very low-key, and you can only find them 
to where you do searches for the sword and sorcery movies of the 1980s. Following almost a year of pre-production, which saw Peter Yates meticulously storyboarding, production designer Stephen B. Grimes sketched hundreds of set ideas, and visual effects supervisor Derek Mettings experimented with elaborate combinations of opticals and scores of construction workers built fantastical landscapes to where Crawl had began production in early 1982. So the principal photography period of this motion picture was filmed non-sequentially, so it wasn't all filmed at the same time. Janet Maslin, who reviewed Crawl for the New York Times, found the film to be a gentle, pensive sci-fi adventure film that winds up moody and melancholy for the Star Wars set, and yet praised director Yates for giving the film poise and sophistication, as well as a distinctly British air, and also bringing an understatement and dimension to the material. Now, Bayard Salas described Crawl as an also an unpretentious movie, with a lot of good things going for it. And he informed that it was very beautiful and there were neglected qualities in those days of what seemed to be a forgotten uh, film medium. And yet, still, Crawl holds a 33% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and yet the film has received a cult following because of its science fiction elements, the expressed admiration of the engaging characters who surround the palette of hero and heroine. So the movie's sole screenwriter, Stanford Sherman, later on went to co-write with director Stuart Raffle, The Ice Pirates, which was directed by Raffle and premiered in the following 1984 year, which, that of course, is another favorite of mine. So let's talk about the score a bit. The film score was composed by James Horner and performed by the London Symphony Orchestra and the Ambrosian Singers. It had been commended as part of the composer's best early efforts before his more famous post-1990 era works. The score features traditional swashbuckling fanfares, an overtly rapturous love theme, and other musical elements that were characteristic of fantasy adventures films in the 1980s, along with incorporating avant-garde techniques with string instruments to represent some of the monstrous creatures in the story. Additionally, to accompany the main antagonist, the Beast and its army of slayers, Horner utilized host-like rhythms and groaning and moaning vocals from the choir. Also of note is the recurring siren call performed by female voices that starts and bookends the score and appears numerous times in the story to represent the legacy of the ancient world of Kral. Now, Horner's score is reminiscent of even earlier works such as Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Some pieces of the music were reused for the area atmosphere near Space Mountain from the Earth to the Moon and now Space Mountain 2. So the score had been released numerous times on albums with various different labels. 
The first was a 45-minute condensed edition, which was released by Southern Cross Records in 1987. And this featured most of the major action cues, three renditions of the love theme, and the music from the end credits. However, music from the title sequence was omitted. Southern Cross Records later released special editions in 1992 and 1994 with a running time of over 78 minutes, expanding on all the previously released tracks, featuring the main title music and other action cues. Now in 1998, Supertrax released the complete recorded score in a two-CD set with elaborate and attractive packaging and extensive linear notes by David Hirsch. This release and the 1992 and 94 releases have become rare and very expensive for collectible items. In 2010, La La Line Records reissued the Super Tracks album with two bonus cues and new linear notes by Jeff Bond in a limited edition of 3,000 copies which sold out within less than a year. La La Land reissued an additional 2,000 copies of the album in 2015. And usually you can find those albums uh, on eBay, and usually they're around $30. Now with Crawl, at the time when every other studio was venturing into a glitterly new realm of science fiction space epics and sword and sorcery extravaganzas, Columbia Studios decided to sink the impressive sum of $27 million into Crawl, which the 1983 film would merge two genres of one bizarre collection of ideas pulled from Star Wars, The Sword and the Sorcerer, Excalibur, and Conan the Barbarian. Peter Yates claimed many years later that the resulting failure wasn't meant to be either a sword and sorcery flick or a bandwagon jumper. Upon the resounding thud that greeted Dragon Slayer in the theaters, Columbia shortened the title project to just crawl, but unfortunately the end result uh, was equally campy and bordered on ridiculous. Among the planet-domineering beasts in spaceship castles, princes and princesses from rival kingdoms united the people in rebellion, and fabulous creatures and tech toys from wild imaginations, audiences quickly identified the concepts as both unoriginal and relatively high on the cheese meter. Decades later, Crawl is remembered for only two things, a very early performance by young Liam Neeson in a small role and an ambitious score from James Horner written before his 30th birthday. The rising composer was fresh off his burst and to the ears of mainstream listeners with his rousing music from Star Trek to The Wrath of Khan, and it became clear to many that what Columbia wanted out of him was another space opera along the same lines that was popular in 1982. There were several reviews of the film through the years that have criticized the score, not only because of the film's rather poor audio mix, but its obvious similarities in style and motif to Star Trek II. The production was among the first to allow Horner a free range of choice on his compositional approach, which makes the score's repetition of style a bit surprising. A more thorough examination of the score, however, shows 
that it had more unconventional, in many ways, interesting endeavors. Now, well, Columbia didn't spare any expense on securing the London Symphony Orchestra and a suitable choir for Horner's recording, the studio was less generous on its time frame for the completion of the music. Overwhelmed by the post-production schedule of a film already missing its target of opening with Return of the Jedi by several months, Horner was tasked with writing 110 minutes of massive orchestral music in a matter of seven weeks, a job more daunting at the time than it would have been with the help of software of later decades. Battling illness and a shortage of staff, Horner would eventually write a score that would both extend his previous stylistic expressions while also exploring ideas that would prove extremely effective in his scores of the following eight years. Now, despite criticism of rehash from many film viewers, Crawl the Score was showered with praise from their film score counterparts, and most of those positive vibes were warranted. Many of Horner's early scores featured the same derivative structures in their attempt to glorify their fantasy elements. Without a doubt, Crawl is similar to Battle Beyond the Stars and the two Star Trek scores from Horner's pens, Aliens and even Brainstorm. And you may hear similar harsh brass tones, rising figures, static metallic rhythms in all these scores. And yet, the themes for heroic prince, evil slayers, and relationship with the princess are all developed well in the score, each offering a lengthy, prominent fashion. The main title introduces the first of these themes with a choral accompaniment, perhaps somewhat a shallow in power, but combined with Colwyn's arrival and the Slayer's attack. The first 15 minutes are explosive thematically and creatively. You'll immediately note that despite a well-rounded orchestration, Crawl is absolutely dominated by its layers of brass. Trombones offer the title theme with the trademark Horner Residence, though the French horns are restrained and the trumpets shrill at times. So the high strings perform a love theme that would share many characteristics with the composer's more elaborate successor for The Rocketeer. As a highlight of Crawl, the woodwind conveyed love theme is provided with three full unadulterated performances in the film and expanded albums featuring the best cue, The Slayer's Attack which likely should have been split into two separate tracks on the album to set this performance aside from the rambunctious action that follows it. In the final sequence of the film, during the track entitled Destruction of the Black Fortress, the strings perform an awkward march with swishing percussion and wailing trumpets, and its staggering rhythms could easily be mistaken for the final starship battle in Star Trek II. The percussion in a few of the battle scenes echo the Klingon material, also in Star Trek III, with the conceptual hints of aliens in the development as well. But conversely, even with the opening minutes of riding the fire mares offer some propulsive adaptions of the score's heroic theme into far more unique 
and enjoyable harmonic forms. The expansive creativity in the handling of the ensemble is what makes Crawl both interesting and somewhat, for a lot of critics, not very uh, unique. But Horner's experimentation with grinding electronic sound would continue, though the score would use the choir in ways that the composer would not explore much further. This, along with the sheer attitude of the brazen, in-your-face brass performances, combine with a few frighteningly dissonant passages to make Crawl more difficult listening experiences than some comparable scores. Now with this, I would have to disagree, because I really appreciate the score for what it is. I think it was dramatic and explosive and bombastic, and yet it was so enjoyable because the themes reminded me of the relatable themes of such films as The Last Starfighter that Craig Saffin had done. So, there were several different releases, of course. One of them was a two-CD release of Crawl, and it had disappeared from the market. And so, in 2015, we see that score was released again. So now, we're going to get into some of these cues. I'll be playing first the Crawl main title and Colwyn's arrival, the Slayer's attack, and the search for the glaive. These really highlight how wonderful this strange world is. It gives us our hero, our villains that you instantly can't stand, and the search for a mystical artifact that has been lost for ages. I hope you enjoy these wonderful tracks by James Horner.
Next, the second set of cues I'd like to play are some action in the swamp, as well as dealing with the widow of the web. I really love these cues. They make our heroes believable, and it shows us that James Horner can make us feel for these characters, giving us the real emotion and color of the film. It reveals the most real versions of the characters in their direct conflict. One shining cue that I want to bring out amongst all the action is the love theme of Colin and Lissa. So now I'll play the cues Battle in the Swamp, Quicksand, The Changeling, Colin and Lissa's love theme, The Widow of the Web, and Willow's Lullaby. I know it seems like a lot of music, but each is only about three or four minutes long. So it leads us to the grand climax of the film. So enjoy these cues.
So sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. I hope you've enjoyed this journey as much as I myself have. I always enjoy talking about a favorite childhood movie, and I really love talking about this one. Every so often, I have to pull out the movie and watch it over again because I love it so much. Now, I know it seems like it's not a high-production film. However, with James Horner's music, we really get some real emotion and high thrills through the score. So lastly today, I will present Ride of the Fire Mares, Inside the Black Fortress, Death of the Beast and Destruction of the Black Fortress, and finally, the epilogue and end title. So until next time, check out my blog at SoundtrackAlley.net, email me at SoundtrackAlley at Yahoo.com, follow me on Facebook, Twitter at RandallAndrews1, and even check out my YouTube channel. I want to thank Jillian Orwall for her fantastic intro today, and until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take some time to review my podcast on iTunes and also listen to it on Podbean. And if you leave a review or rating on there, it'll help us get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com.